Yeah. So I think it, it starts with getting very, very comfortable being uncomfortable with your clients. Uh, you alluded to this idea of we wear a lot of hats, right? You talk about being a friend to a client, maybe not a professional relationship. I, I like in a lot of what we do in our industry to we kind of have to be a family therapist and a wealth manager and an investment manager and all these other pieces along the way. Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success. A podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. Hi, everyone. I am joined once again by our Managing Director, Mark McCarran. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rory. All right, Mark, we have a very special guest uh, for our episode today. She is the national speaker and serves as a senior member of the thought leadership team at Vanguard Financial Advisory Services. She works in conjunction with Vanguard Investment Strategy Group and uh, is crafting and distributing uh, Vanguard analysis and industry research. She's responsible for presenting Vanguard's views on practice management, global macroeconomics, and portfolio construction methodologies. She has a master's in international affairs and economic development from George Washington University. Well, with all that being said, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Maria Quinn. Maria, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Mark, I go ahead and let you start out and fire away with the first question. Sure. Uh, Maria, starts, just to start things off, can you talk about how you got into the world of investing and what your current role is with Vanguard Group? Yes, I'm happy to. I will say um, the, the way by which I came to Vanguard is a little bit serendipitous in some ways. So as you heard from my education background, um, nothing to do with business or finance <laughs> or financial services. Um, I um, after my completion of my undergraduate degree, I actually um, uh, completed a two-year teaching commitment through Teach for America in New Orleans, Houston, um, and Washington, D.C., and then found myself in the midst of a full-blown financial crisis. So I went back to get my master's. Um, I started to realize that the things I cared about a lot um, were the things that um, systemically affected the children that I taught. So looking at access to education, so equitable education, access to affordable housing. Um, and I wanted to take that to much more of an international lens. So completed my master's, um, went and worked in the nonprofit space for a while, and I wound up in California. Actually, I was living in Carmel-by-the-Sea for uh -huh. a, a period beautiful. of time, which <laughs> lovely, lovely town a little bit of a retirement community when one is in their late 20s, yes. um, but absolutely adored Central California. It was one of my favorite places to live, but knew I wanted to come back east eventually. So I submitted my resume to a Teach for America um, resume collection and Vanguard came calling. And I will be completely honest. I think I told the recruiter that um, they had made a mistake that they obviously had not read my resume. Um, and she said, no, actually, we think that you'd be a really interesting candidate. You know, come in, interview. Um, and eight and a half years later, here I am still. 
Um, I've held a variety of roles across the organization, mostly working um, with external advisors and intermediaries. Um, I stood up a, a national speaking uh, business for a while, and now I kind of find myself back um, in this role, serving as a financial planning expert, a coach in some ways, delivering a lot of content um, to our advisor community and also creating of content as well. So it's a, a nice, diverse role that I, I currently find myself in. God, I love it. I love it. And speaking of uh, content creation, I know our, our accounting firm audience, you know, might be interested in how you, you know, you came to be a national speaker and, you know, many professionals, my, myself included, I, I do improv and I did improv or started improv because I had a fear of public speaking, um, you know, getting out there and struggling speaking in front of groups of people. Um, so, you know, what's your advice to, to those out there um, who fear public speaking? Um, you know, what, what do you, what would you advise um, are some good ways to, you know, get out of your comfort zone and to be able to communicate uh, effectively and confidently out there. So first, I'm incredibly jealous that you've done improv <laughs> training. I lobbied Vanguard for a while to let me yeah. do that, and uh, they did not. Um, I have a natural um, ability to to speak in front of crowds, and I think it's because I don't fear the making of mistakes. Um, so I, I think that kind of lended itself to me moving into this role, or at least my my prior roles with the firm. Um, my two main pieces uh, of information at the outset is, you know, know thy content, right? If you wish to be taken credibly, you need to know everything inside and out. You need to know what your competitors think. You need to know what the landscape looks like overall, because um, I think that gives you that air of credibility that you need um, to show that you've done your own research, your own due diligence, um, and then know thy audience. Um, so who are you talking to? I think that time, place, format matters mm -hmm. a lot, right? I think that, you know, the... Um, the keynote speaking address is very different than a board meeting, which is mm -hmm. very different than a one-on-one -on -one client engagement. Um, but I think that once you kind of have all the pieces put in place, you know, what we're ultimately trying to do at the end of the day, and I think the virtual environment has challenged it in a lot of ways, but you're just trying to make a human connection, right? So yeah. I believe in acknowledging vulnerability. Um, I believe in admitting you don't know things, which is something in our industry we do not <laughs> like to do. Um, I believe um, just really coming across as, as human as possible. And if that is a struggle, because I know some of us, you know, getting up on a main stage is terrifying for us. Sometimes it's the acknowledgement of that um, along mm -hmm. the way and just realize that everyone that's sitting out there is really rooting for you to succeed. Um, they, they want to hear what you have to say because you are the expert that they, they need to get that knowledge from. So I think it's just a little bit of making sure you're prepared, making sure you know the audience, and then just going out there and, and being you at the end of the day. I love it. I love it. And so on that, on that note of communication, you know, in the financial industry, oftentimes, uh, you know, practitioners or financial institutions are, are often either in the, in, the, in the business of providing some sort of education or substance for people to, to do things on their own, or they're in the business of providing actual services and education and stuff. And Vanguard, it seems, is in, is in the business of both. So could you, could you yes. speak a little bit to how Vanguard finds a balance of kind of striking those, those two different types of uh, approaching the customer? Yeah, so um, I think it's good if we kind of uh, talk a little bit about the structure of Vanguard a bit. So we have four very distinct business lines within the company. Um, our legacy business, kind of what we were founded on, would be our retail investor group, right? So that's the do-it-yourselfers, but also those that are working with our personal, either hybrid or fully digital advice offer. Um, 
they, I think, have the most interesting balance um, when it comes to service and investments, right, for the individual who solely wishes to self-provision, um, as well as those that, that need more guidance along the way. Um, I, I've, the retail investor website is an incredibly robust archive of tools, of um, literature, of questionnaires, timely topics to get people thinking um, about their investments, provide some of that, it's again, self-provisioned education. Whereas you might get a little bit more of that direct through a hybrid offer, but again, some self-provisioning, maybe some more push content coming from a digital offer. Our other, um, one of our other business lines is our institutional investor group. So that's 401ks. So if you want to think about an interesting balance between <laughs> providing advice and guidance, as well as self-provisioning, right, you're looking at plan sponsors. Um, but ultimately, what we're affecting at the end of the day is a plan participant. So, you know, in a 401k, a 403b, um, you know, we need to make sure that the sponsor is educated. So maybe they have an institutional advisor. But then we also provide kind of that, that basic education for um, the plan participants. So we have educators in that space that pre-COVID would travel and kind of do road shows to provide that, that introduction to the investment, the investment lineups itself, and the importance of investing for your retirement. Our international business, um, now we're in 17 different countries across the globe, so you imagine that the regulatory environment uh, varies a lot in terms of what you can do and can't do in terms of engagement, education. Um, so I think it, it very much varies um, there, but uh, interesting organization that, that is trying to think more about that. Like we look across the, the larger businesses we would have there, the UK, Australia, European Union, Canada, they all have very interesting regulatory environments, but you know, still trying to figure out a, a balance across those. And then where I sit, so I sit with our financial advisor services, um, and, and it's almost in some ways like our retail experience, right? You will have the advisors who do not wish to speak to us at all and will self-provision <laughs> all of their education. They will do all their own due diligence. They might call us if they run into an issue. But then you also find, you know, if we have deeper relationships, deeper partnerships, um, we have the availability of, you know, bringing on portfolio specialists to provide education to advisors, bringing someone like me into a conversation, right? Additional resources from across our enterprise. Um, and it, it really is that, that interesting balance that I do think affects all four of our business lines. Great, great. And, and kind of diving into, you know, what we had Jan to talk about, which is intergenerational yeah. wealth transfer. You know, there's projected to be nearly 45 million households that will transfer uh, over 68.4 trillion in wealth to their hair, to their heirs and, and charity over the course of the next 25 years. Uh, Maria, in anticipation of this inheritance, you know, what strategies should uh, firms take to help facilitate this transfer in order to ensure, you know, the protection of assets while, you know, minimizing potential tax impacts as well? Yeah, I will say when I present this content in person, I almost always ask like, you know, who in the room has the 20 year business plan and no one ever puts a <laughs> hand up when it comes to that, because wrapping our head around 68 yeah. trillion dollars in the span of two decades. Um, and we know that that rate will potentially only accelerate in large part because we have a, a significant population, the baby boomer population that is aging. Um, so when we think about that, um, I know wrapping our head around it conceptually can, can be almost too much to bear. So I like to think of it in terms of, one, taking a look at your book of business. I don't know if it's you know part and parcel to, to the fact that we have client relationship systems, right? Our, our CRMs that help us 
force rank or stack rank our clients. And it's almost always done by AUM. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's also done by referrals, right? The people that will kind of build out your business development pipeline. But are there other ways in which we can think about our book of business, maybe a little bit more constructively? Um, so if we know that this wealth transfer is coming, do we want to take consideration of the age of our book of business? Maybe rank our clients by age to determine if we, if we need to have these conversations, when we need to prioritize these conversations. I often think about gender. I'm a woman, um, you know, as my voice may portray over, over the, the line. But one thing I think about a lot is the distinct planning differences for women with respect to their husbands or, or you know, male investors. Men, when they, I'm sorry, I'm speaking a broad stereotype here, but men typically, when you ask what retirement looks like, they'll say it's, you know, X number of, million of millions of dollars in my accounts at the end of the day. A woman might say something like, you know, I want to make sure that everything's taken care of for the grandkids. Um, we've really been looking at this summer property because we live in the Northeast and it's been so cold and dreary. We'd like a little bit of sunshine, et cetera. That does translate to dollars, but not directly. So I think that, you know, if we think a little bit creatively through our book, maybe some considerations, maybe looking for pockets of commonality or major gaps uh, across our book. Um, that's an interesting way to, to start thinking um, a little bit more. And then once we kind of have a sense of just the general landscape of the book, I like to look to the business offer, right? What, what are you offering? You know, our ultimate goal here is essentially, you know, you want to retain those assets because you've worked so hard to grow them over the years. Um, now you have to focus on building a multi-generational practice. And I look at our industry and I, I speak about baby boomers a lot because, you know, there's such a significant uh, portion of the U.S. population, about 30 percent of the population, and they control a very significant amount of the wealth. Over 50 percent of private wealth is held with them. And our advice industry has really been built and tailored to them. So when I think about advice, immediately what comes to my mind is retirement. Right. We've built advice for retirement purposes. But myself sitting in my late 30s, I'm thinking, actually, I wouldn't mind going back to school and getting another degree because why not? How am I going to think about or servicing that debt if I decide to incur debt in order to facilitate that degree, right? These are the things that might plague an elder millennial or you know anyone that falls into the millennial generation, but not necessarily what our industry has been designed for. So are we providing appropriate services? Um, do we have the right team in place, right? What we find is working across generations you need some form of cultural commonality. That doesn't mean age necessarily, um, but that might mean that you grew up in the same place or you went to the same university or you both happen to have the, you know, you're members of the same club, what have you. Um, some form of, of commonality that you can tap into across that group. One thing I think that's been a benefit to our service model is so often in speaking about this content, I was told, you know, it's just really difficult to get the kids in the room. Right. We're not we're not talking to, to this next generation because like they're just difficult and they're already working with their own advisors. But if there's a silver lining to COVID, we've gotten really good about connecting over a virtual medium, over a camera, over a phone, over FaceTime. And we've had to pull, you know, the baby boomers in and along with it as well to get them comfortable with all of this content and the, the means of which we can distribute it. So I think there are interesting ways we can continue to leverage our COVID experience to help our business model. But once we think about business model and have everything of the components in place, 
then it's really, you know, you've done a little bit of the triaging of the book of business. And then it's kind of time to put pen to paper of where are the gaps, right? What do, where do I need to prioritize? Is it, you know, I always um, talk to advisors about this idea of, you know, if you, if you stack rank your top 25 clients based upon assets, that primary client stereotypically is going to be the husband of the household. That secondary client stereotypically is going to be the wife. If you go through that, just listing out the top 25, client A, client B, I'm assuming you're going to know him extremely well, right? So you know his handicap on the golf course. You know what keeps him up at night. You know how many millions of dollars he wants in retirement assets. Color him in green. You know, Do this on an Excel spreadsheet. Just color in the cell green. For her, do you know the same thing? Do you know what keeps her up at night? Do you know how her articulation of her retirement goals is different? Do you know if she plays golf? Um, do you know what her handicap is if she plays golf, et cetera? If you know all that, wonderful. You're so far ahead of the game. If you don't, there's a gap. And then I also like to point out, consider life stage. We all know extremely young 80-year-olds that are out there running Ironman over the weekend. <laughs> but we also know some, you know, probably, you know, due to multiple chronic conditions, older 55 and 60 year olds. So it might help us prioritize a little bit. So I think it's worth, you know, not only doing just the, the quick assessment of your book, finding any major themes, critically looking at the practice, um, and then critically looking at kind of the gaps in knowledge that you may have. But I think if there's one piece of advice, um, I, you need to get her in the room. Um, you know, our, our stereotypical household group is a husband and wife. We see from research that, you know, he typically makes the decisions regarding the finances. She makes all the decisions regarding the household finances, larger consumer goods purchases, et cetera. Get her in the room. Um, I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, I don't, I know that we need, we know we need to do it. I just don't think we're doing it as well as we could be. I think you're right. And I do actually see, um, Personally, I see a little bit of a light in the end of the tunnel on that one. My my book of business is generally pretty young. My my median median age for my client book is in their early 40s, wow. um, and I'm finding more and more um, not just uh, like kind of co-managing of the household assets, but but also a lot of times the the like anti-gender norm woman taking the lead, especially on execution items, yeah. um, which has been great. Like I I think that it's it's helped me a lot in my practice to actually have the have execution and conversations and, and like garner the respect of both spouses, um, I think is only helping the client relationship as a whole. Cause the last oh, thing yeah. that I would ever want is for somebody to be a client on paper, uh, and never speak to them, you know, like yeah. that actually feels very uncomfortable as an advisor to have somebody that you are, you know, supposed to be representing the, the desires of, and you don't talk to them. Like the few that are like that, like I will, I will, I will tell you is, is not, not where I would like to be either. <laughs> um, but on the same conversation about the the, um, the transfer of wealth and, and thinking about the disparities and, and how people can look at that across like gender lines, across income lines, across demographic lines, um, what do you guys think, uh, like on a logistics like standpoint, what do you guys think that accounting firms should be doing? Like what, what people should be doing, what advisors should be doing to have these conversations? Like who should be worried about this? Should the person in their late 30s be worried about you know, potential changes to, to legislation that could change their inheritance or what their parents' desires for their inheritance could be if there is one. Um, I don't know, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on like how to actually approach the, the execution of this across those, those many different differentiated uh, demographic lines? Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, I yeah. think <laughs> that the one thing that we note in particular uh, is that making these introductions, I would almost say the parents giving you the referral to that next generation, really 
needs to be done no later than the age of 30. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. We actually suggest making informal introductions to that next generation uh, between the ages of, of 18 to 25, right? To let them see you much more informally, um, but see you as the trusted advisor to their parents um, to get in as early as possible. Because you know, if we're too far down the road, we're too late in the game, you know, we don't have the ability to influence whether or not they wish to work with, with us in the future. There's a lot more work that we need to do along the way. And I think it'll probably be a combination for, for the vast majority of people. I don't imagine that everyone um, that'll be dialed in has, you know, a book of individuals who all have 18 year olds and they're like, yes, I can start now. Like there, there will be diversity of age and, um, and generations across books. The, the policy question I think is interesting. Um, you know, when when we look at proposed policy, um, and I always love to kind of emphasize proposed policy is just that. It is a proposal. Um, and I lived in Washington, D.C. for the better part of 10 years. So having a bit of an understanding of the way that machine works, um, you know, we're looking at the, the, the Biden tax proposal plan, which has implications for the inheritance tax, which has implications um, for um, capital gains and the rate at which you may pay for um, capital gains increasing beyond um, kind of the current level, I believe, up to 25 percent. Um, so you would have more income. Um, the government would be able to collect more income by way of taxes. Uh, I will say, you know, we we saw kind of fits and starts of these conversations through September. Uh, it was obviously a campaign um, policy that was that was being promulgated a lot. But right now it's tied up in a lot of other things. Um, so I think it makes for great headlines in a lot of ways. Um, right now, I think that the to use a turn of phrase, uh, the alligator closest to the boat is this looming debt ceiling and how we're going to service <laughs> debt going forward. But you're right, because the tax consideration is you have two significant bills before Congress right now. One, looking at infrastructure, right? We know everyone can agree, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, right or left, that there is a need to address infrastructure within this country. They have tried to decouple it, um, but have not really been successful with decoupling it from the idea of the reparations bill. Um, and so that is you know, the massive trillions of dollars that we're seeing talked about right now, which I can't fathom how much money that is. Um, that's where we're having to, how do we think about funding it? I will say if clients have concerns about taxes, regardless of whether or not they're the 30-year-old who's coming to you who may inherit assets or regardless if they're the existing client in your book who's seeing this and they, they need to think about it, I think it's where we start with a conversation with clients, right? We meet them where they are. Um, that idea of, again, being human to our clients, providing them with necessary education around what it means. And then talking about the ways in which we can prepare the assets um, in the event of a tax rate hike, um, in the event of the sundowning of the tax um, uh, cuts from 2017, right? They will sunset um, in um, 2025, right? So that's not a permanent structure. So we have to plan for that. We have to plan for the eventuality that the next administration, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, will have their own tax plan and proposals that we'll have to think through and talk through with clients. And we do a lot of that just like instinctively within practice for our clients. We manage to tax considerations. We do, generally speaking, a very good job of preparing assets in this industry. I think that we do less great of a job of preparing the heirs for the receipt of that asset. So I think that there's a lot of education that can be provided along the way because what we find is 
regardless of the tax management, the financial planning, the estate planning, et cetera, that goes into a lot of this wealth transfer, there's still money lost. Um, and that's more often than not to do with personal dynamics within the family and the lack of preparation of that next generation um, to receive. Yeah, speaking of heirs, you know, I know there's a Vanguard study that, that shows that 87% of children plan on firing their advisors after they receive the inheritance. And, I, and there's also, you know, a figure that states 70% of women leave their advisor after the death of their spouse. Can you kind of talk about the reasons behind these, these high figures and you know, maybe what can be done to uh, lower those numbers? Yes. So it's interesting, Mark, you had mentioned, right, you want to make sure that you have both clients in that room, right? You want to make sure that, you know, it's not just a client on paper scenario. Because what we find is across the industry, I've been speaking to this research now for eight years, and that's 70% of widows terminating the advice relationships established by their husband. That statistic has held constant for about seven, eight years now. Um, and it's in large part because she hasn't been involved in the process, or if she has been involved in the process, she's been silent. She feels like we haven't done enough to earn her trust. If there's in any form of hesitation in the response to that question, it's not good, right? You need to get her to trust you, to see the value that you bring, um, you know, to get her talking and engaged as much as possible. Because, you know, Sally Krawcheck uses this example as she did when she was at um, Merrill Lynch and leading their wealth management group was, you know, the worst possible introduction you can make is, I am so sorry for your loss. My name is Maria Quinn. I was your husband's financial advisor. I would love to just set up some time um, and talk with you. And we laugh and it's so cringeworthy, but it does happen in our industry. So we don't want to be kind of that urban legend, Sally Krawcheck story. We want to make these um, these engagements and connection with the spouse and with that next generation before a life event necessitates it. Because that life event, a death or an emergency within a family, isn't going to make those conversations any easier. It's going to make them tougher. And that's where that 87% number comes from. That's actually better than it used to be. I kind of feel, you know, it's funny to say that 87% is, is a good number. It used to actually be in the mid-90s. So wow. some progress is definitely being made there. But that is, like, if you don't have mom on board, you're not going to have the kids yeah. on board, right? They don't see your value. They haven't seen everything you've done for their parents for the last 25, 30, 40 years um, because there's probably been no meaningful engagement with them either. And we that that you know statistic, you know, mom might give you 12 months, right? That 70% of widows may give you 12 months. The adult children that receive those assets, that is, you know, transfer of asset complete and that money goes out the door, right? They don't even give you a bit of a buffer to try to establish um, any value uh, there. So you know, that's why we, we encourage to get those introductions as early as possible. Uh, it's not impossible. It just, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, um, and a lot of trust building, which which can be tough, um, especially when you can't meet with people face-to-face at the moment. The, the hypothetical you gave um, with the idea of if, if something were to happen, would, would the spouse feel good reaching out to you? Like immediately my head starts rolling through my client list and like, any one of those that that the answer is no to, you're right, is 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 jarring and is something that you should be yeah. able to fix as as quickly as yeah. possible. Um, I will say, like one of the it's it's a more tertiary circumstance. One situation I've run into a few times are second marriages, where a lot of times the money is completely separate, and they have their own separate advisors from you know their their quote unquote first lives, and that's a lot trickier 
because they yeah. don't want to talk to you. They have their own person. But what happens if they are the first beneficiary? You know, a, a lot of times the second marriages, you know, say 50% of it is going to, yes, go unequivocally to the kids, but maybe the other 50% is going to, to the, the second wife, you know, or second husband. Um, so those, those situations are even trickier, I found, um, where you can make a friendship, but it's very hard to, uh, to form yeah. a business relationship sometimes in that situation. Um, but yeah, that's something to, I think, pontificate on. Um, yeah, in the same vein, talking about, uh, you know, transfer of wealth, um, this is one that I, that I think about a lot, is, the, is the, the children inheriting money and that 70% of wealthy families lose it in the second generation. And I think it's, it's even higher by like, I think it's two and a half between the second and third generation, almost all family wealth is gone. Um, what do you think um, families can start doing to maybe improve that rate? Like, you know, even like you said, the eighty-seven percent of children leaving their advisors that came from, down from ninety-five. Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be great if we could also see, you know, even if it's not perpetual money, if we could see cash staying within within families and in their wealth, uh, you know, for three and a half generations or three generations, even be an improvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys thought about any implementation that that we could look at for uh, for improving the longevity of family wealth. Yeah, so I think it, it starts with getting very, very comfortable being uncomfortable with your clients. Uh, you alluded to this idea of we wear a lot of hats, right? You talk about being a friend to a client, maybe not a professional relationship. I, I like in a lot of what we do in our industry to we kind of have to be a family therapist and a wealth manager and an investment manager and all these other pieces along the way. What we find is, so that 70% statistic is, is quite jarring. And when you go out to the third generation, it's 90%. And there are entire organizations in this country that look at the extension of family wealth and how can you, how can you ensure the longevity of wealth across families, especially for legacy purposes. Um, one thing that we find is the number one reason why clients lose assets across a wealth transfer event or you know, potentially multiple wealth transfer events within a family group um, is a lack of trust and communication within the family itself. This is in large part very culturally ingrained in U.S. society and, and probably broader than that as well. But there were things that you don't talk about. You know, if we're coming to the dining room table. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about politics. We're not talking about religion, right? There, there's this secretive element to these things. And 24-hour news has probably challenged a fair amount of it. But like we weren't talking about wealth at dinner. What that then leads to is potentially a lack of maturity with the beneficiaries, right? A lack, and I don't mean age appropriateness when it comes to maturity, but you know, money a maturity? lack of money maturity. I was going to say financial maturity, yeah. emotional maturity, right? We don't teach um, personal finance in this country, right? You kind of have to learn along the way, or learn from those who've been willing to teach you along the way. Um, and so, you know, when we couple those things together, in large part because we're not having conversations, that leads to uh, potential distrust um, that can lead to a lot of arguments, right? Once the life event happens, right, all of these things tend to blow up a little bit. Um, but what we do find is uh, in, our, in our seats as financial professionals, be it a wealth manager, be it a CPA, you're in a very unique position to address a lot of these concerns, right? You can bring people together for conversation. You can force dialogue to happen. Um, when dealing with a lot of wealth, you can have those conversations about, 
where did this come from? Is it legacy wealth, right? Was it multiple generations that had to make sacrifices to grow this wealth? Was it mom and dad, right? So kind of, you know, the, the new money within the family and all the sacrifices they had to make tie into a mission, right? That we all agree to for the, these assets. And then, you know, if it is a the money maturity aspect, right? How do we provide that that gap or how do we address that gap in maturity? Is it providing relevant life stage education, you know, budgeting, for example? No one taught me how to do that till I was 25. Um, is it combination of finances and marriage, right? If you're thinking about second marriages, is it kind of getting into the weeds and you know talking about what a prenuptial agreement might look like, postnuptial agreements, when there is kind of that wave of inheritance that comes through? Can we inform these, these conversations, get into these conversations um, with clients along the way? Because there are so many life events that can bring about an education conversation. Um, I had alluded to finance and uh, marriage, but you know, the birth of a child, um, the buying of a second house, et cetera. There are all these things along the way where we can step in and provide that much needed guidance that does a long or a, a large part in terms of establishing further credibility um, with our existing clients, right? They, you know, that further engendering of trust but it also shows your value to that next generation and maybe can facilitate a little bit more dialogue across the two. Because what I, one thing I encourage clients to do if they haven't given much thought to it is, you know, have them come in on a blank piece of paper, you know, write down all of their beneficiaries and what those children stand to inherit. They actually might find a lot of those red flags. If, you know, Timmy and Tommy are both going to get the, the family business split at 50, 50, but Tim's worked for the business for the last 25 years. Tom doesn't even live in the same geographic area, and he wants nothing to do with the family business. That's going to cause a lot of distrust, a, fund a fundamental breakdown in communication, and then that leads to loss of assets. So I think that there are probably a lot of things we can do. As I said, we prepare the assets really well. Let's prepare the family, and, and it's all you know down to conversation um, and kind of wearing that, that family therapist hat a little bit. Um, makes total sense here. And then, you know, kind of shifting topics a little bit, um, yeah. Maria, what we're approaching the end of 2021, you know, so, you know, put on your, your uh, future cap here. What, what do you see as far as, uh, you know, what is going to happen towards the end of the year? What is Vanguard looking to accomplish, you know, um, moving forward and, and going into 2022? Um, what should advisors and accounting firms look for as far as, um, you know, uh, advising their clients on, on preparing for, uh, you know, next year and, and uh, you know, possible tax law changes and, and what they can do for their clients. Yes. Uh, so I'll take the, the last part first, if we're thinking about taxes, because I feel like if I'm talking to accountants, you know, I find I don't think about my taxes until like February or March <laughs> when I realize how much I have to pay. I should probably do more to think about that before the end of the year for any tax loss harvesting purposes, et cetera, that you want to get done. So kind of the, the standard um, you know, processes throughout the end of the course of the year um, that you want to make sure that your clients are in the best possible position for, for any tax situation that might present itself. Um, what we understand from, from everything that I've seen and that I've read at this stage with regards to any tax policy changes, it's highly unlikely that significant changes would go into place until 2022 at some point. So, you know, we probably mm -hmm. have that, you know, the remainder of 2021 to kind of wrap our heads around it a little bit more, maybe start planning for what things might look like um, going into 2022 and taking advantage of this slow drip of information as we have it to keep clients um educated, informed along the way, but also make some considerations with regards to um, to their tax situation. 
I think that, you know, when I look at Vanguard, we're, we're in a very unique position that we think extremely long term, right? We are mutually held companies, so we're not publicly traded. So we don't necessarily have, you know, these metrics and milestones and goals that you might find from some other asset managers that we need to hit on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what, what success looks like to us and, you know, what the best possible year uh, for us could look like would be the, the client experience. Um, you know, if our clients do well, right, our, our mutual structure means that a shareholder of a Vanguard product, an ETF, a mutual fund, a target retirement fund, right, they own the company. And so their continued success means our continued success. And in large part, that's driven by, um, at Vanguard, our employees are called crew members, right? So if you crew think members, of our, like our, histori- <laughs> our historical logo is the HMS Vanguard, which was um, the flagship of the Battle of the Nile. <laughs> there you go. See? So I I'm, I now know a lot of British naval history that I never yeah. thought that I would know in my lifetime. Um, but so when you think about, you know, our logo, um, you know, we're, we're crew. Uh, we eat in galleys. We work out at ship shapes. So I mentioned that because we we need a highly engaged, um, productive crew at the end of the day to help our clients achieve their desired outcomes. And so I think it's always a balance for us uh, of what that looks like. Success for us is successful clients, successful crew members. Um, and I, you know, one thing I know that we're probably paying a lot of attention to right now, as I'm sure everyone can kind of understand and wrap their heads around is, you know, what does, what does 2022 look like, right? What does the end of this year and the transition to back to normal or return to office or return to travel look like? And as a firm, we're, we're trying to, you know, figure out how we manage that uh, throughout the remainder of the year and, and hopefully make for a successful 2022 as well. I love it. I love it. And I'm glad we're part of the Vanguard crew over here at every family office, <laughs> Maria. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was very informative. And I, I love what you had to say about this inter, intergener, intergenerational wealth transfer. I know our audience um, will uh, gain a lot of insight from it. Uh, what's the best way uh, for us uh, or for our audience to, to reach out to Vanguard? Is there a specific way to do so? Yes. Yeah, so our advisor website, which is for wealth managers, intermediaries, um, is advisors.vanguard.com. Um, there is a contact us section there that will provide you with you know, the direct dial-in number um, or depending on where you're geographically located, may provide you with additional sales coverage from any of our sales force um, that are across the country. But it's a great way to, to keep in touch um, when you sign up for access for our website. They provide you with the ability to register for our advisor's digest, which kind of gives you you know that the blast email of the new research when our economic outlook comes out in December you'll be the first to know uh, things like that um, just to kind of keep you in the know with everything going on at Vanguard great thank you so much Maria again for coming on the on the podcast Mark thank you for joining me as co-host thank you all right all opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated on television radio internet or another medium You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.